in August at Ocon 2021. The Ayn Rand Institute CEO Tal Tsvani announced the creation of the Ayn Rand University, or ARU, which will encompass existing undergraduate educational programs of the Objectivist Academic Center, along with new graduate level course offerings to expand our cultivation of professional intellectuals. Why is ARI expanding so aggressively in this direction? What is it about the state of the culture that prompted it? What does it mean for ARI's other programs? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we'll be discussing the topic, the Ayn Rand University, ARI's expanded educational program. I'm Aaron Smith, fellow and instructor at ARI. With me today are Keith Lockich, VP of Education and Senior Fellow, and Ben Bayer, fellow and instructor as well. So welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, so why don't we start talking about uh, the cultural context that's part of the reason why ARI is aggressively expanding its educational programs? Yeah, so, um, you know, Tal's announcement comes at a time when I think there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about the state of the culture and the direction the country is heading, direction the world is heading, really. Um, you know, the and, and this is something that you see a lot in commentary about the state of the culture. I mean, just the increasing tribalism and irrationality of our political culture. The fact that both of our political parties are actively working not to expand our freedom, but to increase the, the intrusion of government into our lives. You know, just the, the protests and civil unrest that we see around the country and, and just the rancor and hostility um, there's the whole phenomenon of cancel culture. I mean, just there's there's so many disturbing trends that suggest that the culture is becoming increasingly irrational, increasingly hostile, um, increasingly just moving in a bad direction. And, and, you know, I think a lot of our podcasts over, over the past months have commented on different aspects of these things. Um, I think a lot of these trends are especially pronounced and and sort of focused in academia. It's like a little microcosm of, of what's going on in the culture. And we see there, it's just, it's, it's rapidly becoming dominated by this woke ideology and this dogmatic groupthink and the, and, and the phenomenon of cancel culture is particularly uh, uh, highlighted there. Just last week, we did a podcast, you know, on the state of academia and I mean, I mean, you know, talk about um, some of the experiences that people have. I mean, every week it seems like there's a new professor who's either resigning or has been fired because of advancing, you know, perfectly reasonable views that don't uh, align with the with the current ideology that's dominating. Um, so, you know, I think uh, the, the, there's there's a lot of this kind of thing that's going on. And, and uh, we wanted to actually talk about some of the things that came up in last week's podcast, because that's part of what prompted what we're gonna talk about here. Before we do that, did you wanna add to this, Ben? Yeah, we're, we're gonna play a clip more about the, from, from the podcast uh, last week, but it, it was about the resignation of this philosophy professor, Peter Bogosian, who's been in the spotlight for having advocated for ideas that are controversial within academia and then his getting harassed because of that and then his resigning because of it and it was something that i think uh, resonated with me personally i have a lot of empathy for his position 
Uh, not that I did anything quite like what he did, but I, I was a philosophy professor for more than a decade in higher education. And I jumped ship about four years ago to come to work for ARI. And you know, in my case, I, I could have stayed if I wanted to, but I felt like I was on a treadmill and not really uh, being able to have the impact that I wanted to have. There, are, I think, are still a lot of good people in academia, but they're, they're not rewarded for their contributions. The, the bureaucrats are the ones who are more than, uh, who are rewarded. The, the, the ones who have trendy ideologies are rewarded. And the, the kind of irrational ideologies that you were just talking about, Keith, and even in the space of 10 years, I could see how they were increasingly dominating uh, higher education. And this may come as a surprise to some people, but uh, even, even though philosophy has, I think, been dominated by irrational ideas for centuries, there's respects in which at least philosophy departments have been or had been somewhat healthier than other academic departments, other departments in the humanities for many years. Uh, but even in the last 10 years, I could see those more irrational ideas from critical theory, uh, that you had in other humanities departments starting to really infiltrate academic philosophy to the point where uh, it was the kids who were in charge in, in effect. And that had a lot of really negative implications. And we'll see now in this next clip, uh, Ankar and Nikos talking about what they think the implications of this are for how, how the education industry needs to be transformed. Uh, but Aaron, you may wanna add something as well before we do that. Yeah, I'll just say one thing is that uh, in addition to the increasingly, you know, worrying atmosphere you know, from an intellectual perspective on what ideas can be discussed, what things you can say in class, um, that stifling effect that it has, it's uh, academia is becoming less and less attractive to intellectually minded people. Um, so part of it is that part of it is the whole <clears throat> culture that they might be entering into. Uh, that sort of is chilling of, of thought and speech in, in the universities. But then there, there's also the issue, and I think this is a long-standing problem uh, for many, for philosophical reasons in part, uh, is that there are, the job market is so bad in that field that there are very few jobs. And then when you couple that together with what it's like to be, to enter into academia and that kind of world, it's just becoming a less attractive place to go. And so it, it looks like you need other options. So let's take a look at the clip from last <clears throat> week's podcast where uh, Ankar and Nikos talk about this. So certainly in the US, there's a growing um, kind of a growing, I didn't, it's too strong to call it, I was gonna say a growing movement, but sort of growing conversations about the need for alternative institutions. And I think from in education broadly, so from K-12 education to colleges and universities, that there's more recognition that they're failing in certain ways, or even if you don't put it as they're failing, they're not that good and they could be way better. Um, and, Part of the why I think the comparison to Uber is interesting in terms of thinking about this is that so the taxi cab industry is similar in a certain sense to the colleges and universities and also K through 12 in that there's massive government involvement in these from 
K through 12, that's certainly through pu public schools. But part of what's changed for universities is the role that government and government money plays in universities today is, if you go now like back decades, is significantly greater. And that is corrupting. Um, and it just as it corrupted the taxicab industry, and if you have to have, you just pay the government for a license and so on, and then you won't have competitors, there's a fixed number of licensees and so on. It, did, did anybody think taxicabs were great when they, we just had taxi? No, they're expensive, their drivers are unfriendly, often rude to you and so on. By the time they start to have real challenges, it was enough people are using Uber. This is way better than taxi cabs. We want this. We don't, we don't want to go back to taxi cabs. So, and that is what I think what, what it will look like in regard to education, that there will be a lot of gray areas. Um, is this legitimate and so on? Um, but the if you get real innovation, which you will, if you get Silicon Valley people and, and that kind of mentality involved, it will be so much better that people say, no, we're not going back, even if in some sense they violated the law and so on. Um, and in some ways, it's an even more important disruption than Uber because, for example, oh, I yes. remember around 2014, many libertarians were so hyped with the sharing economy or with 3D printing. They were saying, it's a matter of time to live in a freer world. But if you don't change the ideas, the technology by itself is not going to liberate you. So for, and we, even so the opposite that some of these let's say silicon valley very creative and new businesses their ideas adapt to the mess to the ideological mess out there so disrupting education is the number one need is is the number one area that needs to be disrupted and then disrupting anything else is going to be easier that's the first uh, mention of uh, the, an analogy you can draw between the education industry and uh, and Silicon Valley and the tech industry. Uh, I'm going to make use of that analogy a few more times today. It's starting with this. Ankar mentioned at the beginning of his comments that the need to reform or disrupt the education industry has implications for all of the sectors, K through 12, uh, through university. And I think that's especially true if we're talking about humanities in in uh, university education because as we'll start to talk about in a, an important way it's the humanities that program all the rest of our education system and it's our education system of course that in an important way is you know, provides the software that people run on on a daily basis and that's uh, if, if you're looking for a killer app uh, that's going to help make our society more rational more sane You've got to start with education. You've got to start with what educates the educators, and that's that's the humanities, and that's uh, something we'll talk more about today. Yeah, and this feeds yes, us into. Oh, well, go ahead, Aaron. You want to say something? No, I was actually I was just going to ask you if you wanted to say something about ARI's educational mission. Yeah, so I wanted to bring it back to ARI. If if philosophy is is the if this is the killer app, if education is the killer app. Um, this this brings us back to ARI and what it's what the goal of the institute is and what it was founded to uh, achieve. <clears throat> I mean, the the institute is the Ayn Rand Institute, and everybody you know who supports the institute and works at the institute. I think we do it out of the conviction that the solution to all these problems that we've been discussing, 
the problems with the state of the culture, problems with academia, problems with the intellectual state of the world. Um, these problems can be solved by advancing Ayn Rand's philosophy objectivism. You know, that she solves fundamental problems that uh, philosophers struggled with um, through the centuries um, that are what gave rise to the problems that we're experiencing today. And, you know, there's a whole discussion about the history of philosophy and how we got to where we got to, which, you know, you can, you can follow up in her writings and other places like that. But basically our conviction is that what the world needs is Ayn Rand and objectivism. So ARI was founded with the goal of trying to change the culture by advancing Ayn Rand's philosophy as the foundation for sort of a new enlightenment. You know, to, to the, I mean, there have been periods in history where people had a respect for reason for science, for, you know, for rational persuasion, as opposed to just hostile tribal, you know, infighting. Um, and there's a way in which we want to return to the enlightenment, but on a firmer foundation. Um, so the, uh, our, our, how do you, so how do you, how do you go about doing that? You know, what are the kinds of things you need to do? Well, um, Part of the conviction here has to do with Ayn Rand's view about the role of philosophy in history and um, how it is that philosophy helps to shape a culture. So we have a clip um, that relates to that point that I think we should bring in now and then we can and then we can relate it back to ARI's programs. And I was asking myself, where do I go to see the one in the many? Where do you go? So I heard there's a philosopher, she's very, she has a superpower of seeing ones in many's. So that's all I needed to do. And I want to share with you the, a little bit of the journey I went through in reading a lot of what Ayn Rand had to say about how we change the world. So there's a essay called, What Can One Do? that I find extremely helpful and optimistic in philosophy who needs it. And I want to read paragraphs from it for you. If you are seriously interested in fighting for a better world, begin by identifying the nature of the problem. The battle is primarily intellectual, philosophical, not political. Politics is the last consequence, the practical implementation of the fundamental metaphysical, epistemological, ethical ideas that dominate a given nation's culture. You cannot fight or change the consequences without fighting and changing the cause, nor can you attempt any practical implementation without knowing what you want to implement. This is Ayn Rand. So you have to accept or you have to appreciate the magnitude, the complexity of the problem that you're dealing with before you even start. We know that in business that we all know that. What is the nature of the problem we're trying to fix? So what do you do? I wanna talk a little bit about getting closer to the solution she offers us. In an intellectual battle, you do not need to convert everyone. History is made by minorities, or more precisely, history is made by intellectual movements which are created by minorities. Who belongs to those minorities? Anyone who is able and willing to actively, to actively concern himself with intellectual, with intellectual issues. Here, it is not quantity, but quality that counts the quality and consistency of the ideas one is advocating. 
So I think this is very powerful. It tells you, it gives you a direction of how you should think about changing the world. So I want to show you, and, and luckily we have the video, where Ayn Rand answers these questions on video uh, from the, for new, the new intellectual. Listen you know, in, in several of your novels, you've made the point that leadership in any culture, not only in art, but in literature, morality, politics, and economics, that this sort of leadership must be provided by what you call the professional intellectuals. I wonder if you could tell me just what you mean by the term professional intellectuals. Who are they, for example? Uh, the professional intellectuals are, in effect, the field uh, agents of the army whose head or commander-in-chief is the philosopher. Mm -hmm. The philosopher, the man who defines the basic fundamental ideas of a culture, is the man who determines history. And professional intellectuals are all those whose professions deal with the humanities, the studies of men as against the physical sciences. The professional intellectuals in all their various professions carry to the rest of the culture, to the rest of society, the philosophical premises, the ideas which have been defined by the philosopher. Therefore, they are the transmission belts. They are the ones who determine the goals, the values, and the direction of the culture. So that's what I was getting at when I was talking before about the way in which philosophy, there's an important way in which philosophy programs the rest of a culture. And if, as we've been discussing, there are serious problems with that programming, it's going to have impacts on the operating system of, of the culture. Of course, then the big question is, what's the, what's the right way to fix this problem? What's the right way to do the reprogramming? And there have been a variety of ways of thinking about this uh, on behalf of objectivists over the years. Yeah, so the, so this perspective that Ayn Rand offers about the role of intellectuals in, 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 in a culture has informed ARI's strategy from the beginning, because the idea is not that you've got to change everybody's mind, you've got to, you have to have a generation of intellectuals who understand, you know, from our point of view, it's, it's her ideas are the ones that need to be understood and transmitted to the culture. So you need you need people who have a deep understanding of objectivism and can apply it to various fields, particularly in the humanities, but to all other fields and communicate those ideas to the culture. So, um, so, at the, at, at, so how do you go about doing that? I mean, so from the beginning, ARI's strategy has been, first of all, you have to have programs that are aimed at just building awareness and letting people know that Ayn Rand's ideas exist and what the content is and attracting them to those ideas. So we've had programs from the beginning aimed at introducing students to Ayn Rand's ideas, our, our essay contest program and our campus clubs program. And we have a free books to teachers program that we give classroom sets of the novels to high schools and so on. So, and on top of those awareness building programs, the idea of those is to you know, ignite and inspire a certain number of those students to come um, and to seek out you know, more advanced training. And so from the beginning, we've also had advanced training programs. It started out with people who are already graduate students in philosophy. And then over the years, we, we grew a, a, a program that we call the OAC, which is aimed at sort of an undergraduate level. And the idea is to give people a grounding in, in objectivism and objective communication. And part of the idea here is this is not something that you can get 
in academia, you know, through the 80, you know, ARI was founded in 1985. In the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to uh, study objectivism, you couldn't, you couldn't minor in objectivism in college. It just it was not something that academia was interested in or was offering. So we created our own educational program sort of outside the mainstream. We, so we were sort of Uber, we were sort of Ubering our own, uh, you know, programs from the beginning um, and offering the kind of training that we think people need. Now, I think over the years, um, the, what we've been trying to accomplish is to train people in the way that, you know, to become the sort of new intellectuals that Ayn Rand was describing um, so that they could inject objectivism into the intellectual culture. And a, a lot of what our, our, that involved was, you know, working on helping people to achieve success in getting academic, you know, getting tenure track jobs in philosophy, for instance, or in other areas in the humanities. So, you know, training with us so that they can then go on and try to impact uh, the culture in academia. Um, and so we've had these programs running for decades, but now I think given the things that we've been talking about, about how the culture has evolved just in the last, you know, decade, just seeing where the culture is today and seeing where academia is today. You know, we're, we're looking at our strategy and we're thinking about whether there's maybe a, 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 a different a modification of it that's necessary in order to implement it. Um, so we actually have, we have a lot of clips today, but we have a clip uh, that relates to that point uh, as well, so. We at ARI thought, so ARI was founded in the 80s, so this is like over a certain span of time, that what we need to do is get people into universities and that you can have change and reform and better ideas winning out, with, but within these institutions. And I think most of us at ARI now are more skeptical that that is either if not if possible, the best strategy. Um, I think some of us are uh, skeptical that it's even possible, but even if it is in some sense possible, is it the best strategy? And given the, the world that Silicon Valley has opened up, that all these new possibilities, the, the thinking is, no, now it, it's, let's create more of our own programming, our, more, our own institution, where we do some of the training that would have happened in universities and so if the universities were good. So, to, to, so this is the issue of an alternative institution instead of trying to reform from within existing uh, universities and existing education. What's crucial from our perspective is it's not just a different institution or institutional framework. It has radically different ideas that will be the foundation for what we're teaching and what we're doing. And not just in the sense, and this is what's diff very different than Bogosian. He seems to have this kind of attitude that we need to get back to liberal, um, the liberal university, the, when the humanities were liberal. And our perspective on that, and particularly if you don't mean classical liberal, which I don't think is exactly what is meant when he uses liberal, um, is, no, all kinds of the, those ideas are really, really wrong and lead to where we are now. So, and Rawls is again, 
an example of that. Like he'll be put in the liberal tradition and our perspective on his whole viewpoint and the egalitarians more generally are as their enemies. And not just like they're wrong, they're enemies of freedom, of reason, of the enlightenment, of objectivity. I want to piggyback on something that Ankar said there in the clip was that um, th trying to get people into academia who have a deep knowledge of objectivism has been an important goal for us for a long time. It's a difficult goal, largely because academia doesn't want those ideas uh, to come in, uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, ARI has had, for since its inception, educational programs training in the philosophy of objectivism, because you can't simply go to university. You can go to university and study Plato. Um, you can get your PhD uh, focusing on a particular philosopher, Kant, Hegel, Wittgenstein. You can go study these philosophers with experts who have long publication history, who have scholarly record and so on. And you, it's very rare that you can find someone in academia with that kind of skill level, knowledge and so on when it comes to objectivism. Um, we, there are a few, but it's extremely rare in academia. So it's not as if somebody was really interested in the philosophy of objectivism, they wanted to uh, uh, have a career uh, focusing on those issues, you just can't do it, uh, or it's becoming very difficult to do. Uh, and so one of the reasons we do this is they can come here and train with specialists outside of academia in the philosophy of objectivism and either take an academic route or take a different kind of route uh, to pursue an intellectual career. And that's what ARI has been offering for some time now is, is the, an, an institution, the Objectivist Academic Center, where one can come and learn about objectivism from experts. But uh, as, as the very previous discussions have indicated, there's still a sense of that's not enough that there's still need for more disruption. It's not just enough to train our intellectuals and to send them into academia to do battle. There's need for more uh, of an alternate institution where those intellectuals can actually go to work to have a direct impact on the culture. And so the big question then is, how are you going to offer this alternative institution? How are you going to disrupt the education industry in that regard? and uh, I've been drawing on some tech industry lingo and analogies. I think you'll see uh, Tal does the same thing in this kind of Steve Jobs style unveiling of uh, our proposal to disrupt the industry that we're about to watch. So let's, let's take a look at the last clip. So let me ask you, if intellectual change history and we can attract the intellectual minds that are ignited by Rand's ideas. And we can educate new intellectuals at the highest level. What should we be announcing today? So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to our biggest initi initiative so far. The Ayn Rand University. Yes, this is the time. This is bigger than iPhone. Believe me, this is bigger than iPhone. It's not our mobile app. It's not a rebranding of things we already do. 
It's a serious launch of an educational organization that is going to be growing over the years and decades to come. It's going to be called the Ayn Rand University, and it's going to be the best philosophy and hopefully maybe humanity school in the world one day. I think if you ask me as a marketer, if I would put money on a university that offers the best ideas in the world, I would. I think there's going to be a vacuum that is going to grow between the ridiculousness of the left and the right. And there's going to be a void. And where would kids go to learn liberal arts in a decade? Where would they go? So let me explain to you how we're going to launch this initiative, what it's going to have today. And your imagination can take you to what it can be in a decade or two. So the Ayn Rand University is going to have four elements to start with. Sorry, I'll go back. The first one, we're going to consolidate all of our outreach programs into one center, trying to attract more people and the right people to the university. We're calling it the Student Outreach Center, Introductory Education in Ayn Rand's Works and Ideas. That's the, the objective of this center, to ignite more people, especially young people, to come and learn philosophy and appreciate that philosophy is important and philosophical questions are important. And secondly, that objectivism has something unique to offer them. I'll tell you more about that in a second. The second thing, we're going to repurpose OAC as a two-year undergrad program for the study of objectivism and philosophy. And thirdly, we're bringing, sorry, we're bringing back the OGC, the Objectivist Graduate Center. It's going to be an advanced school for the study of objectivism and philosophy for all of the OAC graduates that are on their path to an intellectual career. And anyone who considers themselves an advanced student of objectivism, all the people on HBL, if you think you can take those courses at the highest level, you're welcome to join. It will be a, a buffet of courses that we're going to introduce every year in many different subjects that you can take with, with our scholars. It's gonna be designed mainly for the people in our program that we see that they have the potential to become future objectivist scholars. So you're welcome to ride along. And finally, we're gonna grow our faculty and our fellowships. We just grew our junior fellow program from two people to seven. We're growing our faculty. So the question, what are we gonna do with what Ayn Rand gave us? Objectivism, a philosophy based on reason, grounded in truth, in reality. She gives us ammunition. And the question is, what are we going to do with this? I want to read to you one more quote from that same article. Today, most people are acutely aware of our cultural ideological vacuum. They are anxious, confused, and groping for answers. It's almost like she's asking me or us, are you able to enlighten them? Are you able to answer their questions? Can you offer them consistent case? Do you know how to correct their errors? I don't know if you know what it takes to stand on this stage and take question after question after question about philosophy. It takes decades. And I don't know if you know how philosopher work looks like. They don't have tools. Your life is easy. You're extrospecting 99% of the time. You know what they do? They think. They read. They integrate. They introspect all day long. I don't know how they do it. It's, it's easy, huh, Tara? <laughs> so it takes a lot of effort. And I have so much respect for the people around me today in ARI. 
doing this work. So I'll continue. Are you immune from the fallout of con constant barrage aimed at the destruction of reason? And can you provide other with anti-missile missiles? A political battle is merely a skirmish fought with muskets. A political battle is a new, a philosophical battle, sorry, is a nuclear war. We're gonna create a facility for nuclear missiles. That's what we're gonna do. Missiles of reason, of prosperity, and, and flourishing. I think it's worth pointing out that when Tal talks about creating a facility, he, he really means it. So I think maybe many in our audience are familiar with the Ayn Rand University brand as the name of the app where they can listen to hours and hours of uh, lectures by Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff. And that's not going away. If anything, and he answers a, questions about the, a question about this later in his talk, that, that app may become kind of the public facing uh, entity for an actual university for something that's looking more like an actual university. If you look at, we've got outreach programs, undergraduate, graduate, uh, alumni association. That's the way that we're increasingly thinking about what we're doing at the Institute. Um, and I wanted to mention that because it, it connects to, uh, it's worth thinking of it in those terms when thinking about how, our, how it relates to our other programs. We often get questions uh, from our supporters. Why doesn't ARI do X? Why doesn't ARI do Y and Z? In fact, there were even people in the audience at Tal's talk who asked just that kind of question. And I thought that the way that he uh, responded was, was interesting and revealing because he said this about this particular suggestion that someone in the audience made, that's a good idea. Maybe you should do it, or maybe we need an intellectual to do it, but where are we going to get the intellectuals to do it? And that's, he, he says, this is the way he's now responding to these kinds of suggestions because ARI has a focus. It has a, a core focus now. And this uh, Ayn Rand University project is increasingly that core focus. Uh, it's not the only thing that we do. It's, it's not, and not everything that we do is a means to that end, but it is what's increasingly taking up the bulk of our energy and our time. And all of the other programs that we engage in uh, are, going to orbit around it in one way or another, especially insofar as this program is productive of a lot of the other programs. If you have intellectual programs, you need intellectuals to do them, and we are concerned with producing intellectuals. Um, and so I, I thought I would also just concretize that a bit, because one of the ways in which we often get questions from people about why aren't you doing X is in the form of why isn't ARI commenting on such and such issue or weighing into such and such controversy or writing articles on this or that topic. And as someone who uh, writes a lot of the articles that we do write on, I think it's interesting to view that question through this prism. Uh, we see ourselves chiefly as an educational organization um, now through the lens of this Ayn Rand University. And you have to look at the things that we comment on uh, in, the, in the everyday news from that perspective as well, because part of what we're doing is thinking of ourselves as this educational institution, what kinds of controversies, what kinds of cultural issues are worth commenting on with that uh, institutional uh, apparatus in the background. We comment on the issues where we think there's a substantial philosophical point to educate people about. That's what we do as 
an educational institution. We're also very often picking the topics where we think the audience includes young people of an intellectual orientation who we would like to get in our orbit, who we would maybe like to become OAC students. And so we're thinking about what are the topics that those young people are interested in. Now, we're not doing it only to attract them. After all, we want to be able to inspire them uh, to become intellectuals in their own right, who will engage directly with the culture and not necessarily just for the sake of attracting more OEC students. Uh, but that still has implications because as an educational organization that's aimed at changing the culture, part of what we're trying to teach our students to do is to engage with the culture in a way that's aimed at changing people's minds, uh, introducing people to new ideas and getting them to adopt more rational ideas. And there are ways to engage in cultural commentary uh, that do that. And there are ways that distract from that, ways that are merely venting. And we're aimed at can the I, uh, former, not the latter. Yeah, can I jump in here? Because on, on that point that you're making, uh, we've been referencing Steve Jobs in the tech world and that sort of thing. And one of the things that uh, is a common principle that you hear, I. I I think Steve, this is one thing that Steve Jobs articulated. I don't remember exactly, but the idea that that it's it's as important what you say no to as a versus what you say yes to the kinds of things, the kinds of um, programs or products or things that you choose to focus on. It's just as important to be very clear on what you're not going to do. And this is something that really came out in Tal's presentation. Some of the questions you mentioned, some of the questions that he got during the Q&A about, or what about this? You know, are you guys gonna work on this? And I have to say, so Tal's been with ARI for three years. And, and the, to me, this really signaled that he's very, we're, we're very clear on what our focus is now, because for the first time I heard him say, no. <laughs> he says, no, we're not gonna work on that. And here's why, it's because this is what our focus is. Um, and I think that it's, it's, uh, um, it's very, uh, valuable to be super clear on what your top priority is what your you know your your central focus is so that because that gives you a standard for judging um, whether something you know is it integrates with and aligns with your primary goal or if it's going to be a distraction from it as you were describing yeah and this doesn't mean that we don't want to hear your suggestions it's just that you <laughs> the kind of answer that you might get if if you send them to us um and and sometimes the answer that you'll get will be that sounds like something you're really interested in uh how can we help you be the one to do it what can we teach you what can what kind of tools can we give you as an educational institution in order for you to take up this torch uh and carry it yourself so um keith do we want to maybe uh transition to taking questions from the audience about this uh did you have anything that you wanted to add aaron i know you're having some audio connection problems on your end okay so yeah i'll, should, I'll just i'll add one thing hopefully there's not too much background noise uh something okay. going on out there um uh one of the things that we're doing and i think so i think that you guys were talking about how this has really become our key focus and focus area and I think that's really exciting. Part of what's exciting about this is, and you were also bringing up the fact that, why don't you do this? How come you guys aren't doing that? People don't realize sometimes how small of an organization ARI is. 
we have a few faculty members, we have a few affiliate intellectuals that do, but we're a very, very small shop. Uh, and if we're going to be able to impact the culture in the way that we want, we have to grow the number of faculty. We have to grow the number of intellectuals who are capable and interested in um, discussing, teaching, writing about, also training uh, other intellectuals and in these issues in the culture. If we're not, we're, we're a small shop with a few people and too small of an influence. And so one of the things we've done is we've brought on some teaching assistants, uh, junior fellows in effect, uh, who are mostly PhDs in philosophy or they're in a PhD program in philosophy uh, to work with us while we're teaching in the OAC. Uh, they help us with grading. They uh, kind of team teach a bit with us and they learn from us. There's some mentoring going on. Uh, Keith is running a, a writing workshop for these um, junior fellows. And uh, so they're growing and we're starting to treat them in more like apprentices, there's more mentoring going on uh, so that eventually they'll be able to teach their own classes, we can expand faculty and so on. So I think that's an exciting aspect of this. When you, when you, if you start branding it, it's like a university, you start to think it's not just three or four people, it's more people with different subject area expertises um, and so on, that's exciting. Yeah, let me just build on that a bit, just, just, to be, just to be very clear on what exactly it is, what exactly Ayn Rand University is right now. So. We talked about, you know, having a facility, you know, a university, and that may connote like a brick and mortar institution or something. That's, that's something to consider for the future, but what it means right now, in particular for this upcoming year and, you know, for the, for the a couple of years to come, it, it, what it means is uh, really putting a lot of effort in expanding our faculty and our educational offerings. So as Aaron alluded to, you know, over the decades, ARI, the, the, our intellectual staff has consisted of a handful of people. I mean, just a few of us. And there have been just a few people training uh, people in our Objectivist Academic Center. Uh, we got a question, what's the rate of graduates from the program? So because we uh, have over the years had a lot of different educational programs with a lot of different goals, um, you know, we've, we've only had a certain amount of capacity for training people in our programs. So we've admitted, you know, maybe a couple dozen students every year. Um, and then with attrition, you'd get maybe a dozen graduates a year from the program. Um, and so part of what it means that we're, 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 we're creating a university and we're expanding these programs is we're, we're, we plan to scale this up a lot. So already this year, um, we've admitted more than 50 students into our incoming class, which is the largest incoming class we've ever had. We've got a whole cohort of graduate level junior fellows, teaching assistants, you know, we've got a whole set of uh, Objectivist Graduate Center course offerings, which we haven't had, you know, in a long time. So that's what it means right now. So it's all, it's a, it's a virtual university as it's always been. Um, and what it means that we're announcing this and putting our focus on it is that the goal is to scale all these different aspects of it up um, and, and see how big we can get it. Maybe someday we'll have a you know, physical location, but I think one of the points that Ankar made in his clip is that Silicon Valley and the tech industry has so disrupted the way ideas get disseminated today that it may never, you know, maybe we'll never need a physical university 
maybe um, all we'll need are different forms, different online platforms for educating people. Um, and, and that's the way to scale it up more effectively than having a physical institution. Yeah, Keith, you mentioned the, the 50 uh, people we've admitted, and it's worth mentioning, we just had our first class this week for the first year of the undergraduate program. And we had something like 80 people in attendance because there's also auditors. And so people who are interested in learning more uh, from us can, don't have to go through the application process. They can also sign up to be an auditor uh, for tuition. And we'll have information at the end that will give uh, that will show how you can do that. We're still accepting auditors to this day, um, and that probably relates to the other question that came in. Um, and there's still time for more questions, so please submit them if you're interested. Someone asked Keith, the OEC's courses are grouped into years. Will that happen for OGC courses? I see two distinct OGC tracks: a history of early modern philosophy track and a communications track. Uh, Keith, you want to comment on that? Uh, maybe yeah. a little bit more information on the difference between OAC and OGC and the relation of, say, auditors to either? Yeah, at this point, so at this point, the OAC has a set curriculum, a two-year curriculum. There's sort of a, a two-year class that focuses on a deep dive into objectivism and objectivism in relation to historical figures and sort of the big, some of the big questions in philosophy. Um, and there's also a, uh, there's a writing class that's part of that as well to give the basics in objective communication. So the OEC has a set curriculum. The OG, and, and the idea is, um, this is often our first experience with people coming into the program. We wanna to get to know them and we want them to get to know uh, what it's like to take training from ARI. And also these are often people who are just considering the idea of an intellectual career. And so part of what they get out of OAC is they get a taste of what it looks like to do intellectual work, to write, to think about philosophical issues, to write about philosophical issues. Um, and so it, it's, it's sort of a mutual uh, process of deciding, you know, is, is um, you know, are these people who are good prospects for moving on in our programs? And from the, and from the students' point of view, um, is this something that I want to pursue and that I want to continue? So that that's why the OAC is very delimited and it's got a set curriculum. The purpose of the OGC is to take the most, you know, the, the students that are really, really inspired and excited to pursue an intellectual career and that we think have a lot of potential and to really develop them and train them. And for that purpose, there isn't really a value in having sort of a, at least at this point, we don't have a set curriculum. Like you'll take these classes, you know, and there's a first year and a second year. It's more like you could think about how things work in graduate school, where there are certain co course offerings that are, that are tailored to the needs of the students, uh, you know, who are in the program at that particular time. You know, there are certain course requirements they have to take, but they're also, they're doing their, they're starting to develop their own independent research ideas, and uh, they have particular interests that they want to focus on. So right now, what we have is a set of um, OGC offerings that, so we have a catalog of courses, but those courses won't, won't necessarily be offered, you know, on a, on a set curriculum, on a set timetable, they'll be offered 
um, when we think it's appropriate and valuable for the cohort of students that we have in the program. Um, so that, that's sort of how that works. But it is worth probably also adding that uh, even for the first, at least some of the OGC courses, it is possible to take them as an auditor. Uh, not all of yeah. them, but uh, we'll give you all a, a website at the end of the episode where you can actually now look at the whole course catalog and there'll be information on uh, how to sign up and how to, how to join up as an auditor if you're interested in it. It's, it's a kind of a la carte offering. And uh, that gives me the opportunity to say something about the kind of personal meaning of, of this program to me, because I mentioned at the beginning that I had been in uh, higher education for more than a decade teaching as a professor. And a big part of the reason that I left at the end wasn't even so much, oh, I'm surrounded by all these irrational ideas. Uh, I mean, they were there, but they didn't, I, I think I had the skin to deal with it. Um, the biggest problem for me was this was was actually the more and more of my students didn't actually want to be there. More and more of them were taking the classes just as a to fulfill a requirement and not because they were actually interested. There were still some and they were they were what made it worth doing, but there were fewer and fewer of them. And one of the things that I love so much about teaching at the OAC and now the OGC, the ARU, is all of the students want to be there. They're all taking it as an elective. They're all taking it because they want to gain a better understanding of, uh, of these ideas and to use them for their own lives, their own career. And increasingly, many of them are looking to use them uh, for uh, their career as some kind of intellectual. And I get to have so much more of a direct impact on, on people's professional lives as intellectuals now than I ever did when I was teaching uh, at a normal university. It, it just, it's added uh, incredibly to my, uh, to my happiness. Yeah, it's I'll, I'll the, add some. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, let me add just something to that. Uh, is that now that ARI has uh, is more heavily focused on uh, the, the the intellectual training, uh, we are also more and increasingly in a position to offer career opportunities. So, in other words, one of the things that we do if we train people to be uh, better equipped. Uh, intellectually uh, to spread and teach the ideas of objectivism, it's if they're not going into academia, I mean, it's harder and harder to get jobs, the job market's a train wreck, aside from all the other things that's going on in the culture, university culture. It's if we don't, or if we don't have jobs for them, or if we can't project, uh, it's you could work here, you could, you could work at this alternative university, so to speak, and do the kinds of works that professors do. I mean, you teach, you write, you speak, uh, you mentor, um, if we don't have those kind of opportunities, where do those intellectually trained people go? Where do the resources that ARI puts into that kind of training, where do these people go? If they're not going into academia, it's a dead end. And so one of the things we're trying to do is, is the, the better we can train these people, the more we can think of them as potential colleagues, potential intellectual allies, whether, you know, in, largely outside universities. Yeah. Yes. And think, if you, I mean, well, go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say, if you if you join up as an auditor, that's one of the things that you're helping to make possible through your tuition. Of course, it's also an opportunity for us to thank our donors who are making it possible in an even bigger way. And we should remember also to thank the people who uh, gave us some super chats over the course of this episode. Uh, uh, thanks for the thumbs up, Mary Eileen. And, and, and Mary Eileen mentions, make your own t-shirts with the smiley face. 
that I think is a, a joking reference to the suggestion that was made in Tal's session, uh, where Tal uh, pushed back, and I think he's onto something with that. Yeah, I wanted to say one more thing on to building on Aaron's point um, because I think the in in addition to you know, can you get have an intellectual career in academia or could you have an intellectual career at ARI? One of the things that we also see with this tech industry disruption of the education space and, the, and just the whole, um, you know, dissemination of ideas is the rise of, of intellectual entrepreneurs. I mean, you have people um, doing all kinds of work as independent intellectuals uh, who aren't affiliated with the university, they aren't affiliated with an organization like ARI, or they start their own organization. And the, the way that the tech industry has made it really easy to start an organization or start a YouTube channel and build a following. And, uh, you know, so what, I think it's important to mention that one of the things that we're looking for in people who want to come into our program is people who are interested in being an intellectual, but who also have that kind of entrepreneurial mindset. And the idea that you could, you know, get really deep training in objectivism and its application to a field that you're interested in, and then go off and, you know, start some company or organization or, or platform of your own, um, and, you know, have, into, have an impact on the culture and be an intellectual influencer with the podcast or a YouTube channel, that sort of thing. So the, uh, the the we started off today talking about how kind of depressing the state of the culture is but on the other hand um the progress that we've seen that still continues with technology um has creates so much creates the possibility of, of opportunities that people never dreamed of before and you know i think the uh the excitement that we've seen with the launch of this program, with the incoming class, you talked about the, having the first class with 80 people, including auditors. I mean, there's, there's so much energy and so much excitement around this program and around the, the faculty that we've attracted and the students that we've attracted and the auditors that we've attracted. So it's, I, I just think it's, it's it, Tal said, it's the biggest thing we've done. And I, I, I second that and I'm just, I, I think everybody should look into it and consider whether this is right for you because it's super exciting. Let's, we should probably wrap up now with uh, some resources for people who want to learn more about what we've been talking about today. The first place uh, they can maybe ask us some more questions is right after this episode, we're gonna be going to Clubhouse, look up the Ayn Rand Club and you'll see uh, about seven minutes, this room will start. We'll just be answering questions you might have about the Ayn Rand University, questions about our motivation for, for founding it. We're happy to talk with you more there and then. Also, uh, if you want to actually take a look at our course catalog, that is now available online at university.einrand.org, unveiling that URL for the first time today. You'll see all the classes that we're offering, both OAC and OGC courses, how to sign up for them as an auditor still. We're very happy to have new auditors even uh, after some of these classes have started, but not all of them have even started yet. So uh, check it out, see what's available there. Also, we shared a few clips today from Tal Swani's uh, unveiling of the ARU at this summer's Ocon conference in Austin. You can watch that entire talk 
uh, if you go to our YouTube channel. That's at bit.ly slash ARI-future-2021. That's Tal's talk, Spreading Objectivism and Vision for ARI's Future. You can see how he unveils his program and the wider context that he gives for it. Uh, Tao also shared some clips from Ayn Rand's interview uh, back in the 60s uh, about her book for the new intellectual where she discusses her view of the role of philosophy in history and uh, you can watch that whole interview also on our YouTube channel that's at, directly at bit.ly slash ein-rand-our-world if you want to type that directly in otherwise it's on the home page uh, of the YouTube channel where there's a section just of Ayn Rand interviews and talks. And I think last of all, we did a whole conference on the theme of Ayn Rand's book for the new intellectual a few months ago at our online Ayn Rand Con Global 2021 conference. And that is also available as an entire playlist of talks on why you might want to consider a life as a professional intellectual on our YouTube channel. The title of the conference was How to Put a Dent in the Universe, another uh, line from Steve Jobs to play out the uh, the Silicon Valley analogy fully. Um, you can find that on the list of playlists on our YouTube channel or go to bit.ly slash arcon-global-2021. Otherwise, uh, if you enjoyed what uh, you saw today and you'd like to see us do more of these episodes, our next episode next week will be one of our ongoing Q&A episodes on philosophy. I will be uh, running this one with my colleague, junior fellow Tristan Deliege who's another one of our, he's one of our junior fellows and OEC instructors. We will be taking your questions on objectivist philosophy. That's next Wednesday. We could still use more questions for this episode. So if you have general questions about objectivist philosophy that you'd like us to answer on the show, uh, now is your chance to submit them. Just send us an, uh, an email at newideal@einrand.org. We'll try to answer these on the October 13th episode. Uh, if you put in a subject header, a question for a Q&A episode, that will help. Uh, I will be taking a look at those. Uh, otherwise, if you'd like to follow us in the future, if you're watching us on YouTube, please remember to like and comment on this episode, especially if you're watching the recording, writing a comment helps optimize the algorithm. Remember to follow us and hit that bell button to get notifications. Also on Facebook, if you're watching, uh, please like and comment, maybe share this episode on social media. Uh, and as always, if you have questions about anything that came up today, uh, if you'd like to give us suggestions for future topics, uh, we always read these emails and we answer many of them. Send us an email to that same address, newideal at einrand.org. Thanks very much for joining us today. We will see you all next week for that Q&A episode. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Keith. See you all on the Clubhouse in just a few minutes. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.